Verse 14 says, for the love of Christ constrains us. And then it goes on to describe why his love makes us do what we do. But I just wanted to dwell for a while this morning on the love of Christ. In verses uh, 12 and 13, Paul has said he's sharing these things with the Corinthian people for this second letter because some people were criticizing him, some people were saying bad things about him, were even saying he was crazy. When Verse 13, we'll be beside ourselves. <laughs> That's not a nice thing to call somebody. You're beside yourself, man. You got you, and then there's the other you over there. And he says, I want to give you something to answer them that are criticizing, that are glorying in appearance and not in heart. And then he says, it's the love of Christ that pushes us, that constrains us, that moves us to do what we do. And in verse 15, I'll read that as well. That he died, if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which, loved, which died for them and rose again. If we, if we glance back, I'm sorry, ahead a few pages to chapter 8, and verse 9, I don't have the page number, perhaps I do, 12, oh, I can't read my own scribbles. But a few pages over, chapter 8, verse 9, Paul again talks about their love, the Corinthians' love. He says, I want to prove the sincerity of your love. You know, verse 9, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how we understand how great his effort for us was. Though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Doesn't that describe the love of our God, who sent his son, not just from Bethlehem to Calvary, but from heaven to earth? He humbled himself and became a man, and then died the death of the, the worst kind of death. In Jeremiah chapter 31 page 805 in your Bible, if you want to use the page numbers, Jeremiah chapter 31, there's another description of the love of the Lord for us. The Lord, Jeremiah 31, 3 says, the Lord has appeared of old unto me, saying, yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. I've loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Why does God love us? There is no reason. God loves us because God loves. I just lost my sound, Carl. I, don't, I may be better turn this on. I don't know what happened to the lapel. All right, thank you. Therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. We're familiar with the verse much closer to home in the New Testament, John chapter 3, verse 16, expresses this idea of God loving this way, for God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way, and then it explains it. He loved the world this way, that he gave his only begotten Son. That's how God loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son. The result of his giving his Son is this wonderful open invitation that whosoever 
believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What a great love that he gave. And again, I don't think it's just talking about Bethlehem, but this is saying he gave him to die on the cross, his son given up to the death, the death designed for a criminal. If we move from chapter 3 to chapter 13 in John's Gospel, in the beginning of this chapter, this is after the end of Jesus' public ministry, and he's gathering with the disciples together for that last supper. Page 1134, if you need the page number. Now before the feast of the Passover. That feast of the Passover was when Jesus would die. When Jesus knew What did he know? His hour was come. His hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. He's going home. We think, wow, he knew the cross was close upon him. What an awful thing. No, he was thinking, I'm going home. I've been away all this time. One more thing to get through, and then I'm going home. Some among us have served in the military. And that last wake up before the graduation from boot camp. Just one more thing to get through, and then I'm going home. Now, you still have service to do, but boot camp will be over with, and that's a good thing to look forward to. Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world. Having loved his own, which were in the world, he'd loved them for three years, most of them. It says he loved them unto the end. That expression better be understood. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them the, with an unending love, a love that just the most that you could love anyone, he loved them. He loved them unto the uttermost, unto the end. A few chapters further down, chapter 15, page 1137, Verses 12 and 13, Jesus is explaining about what he wants the disciples to know and what he wants the disciples to do. In verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. It's all about the joy of the Lord. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. They knew he had loved them. Some of them knew he had healed them. Some of them knew he'd taken their burdens and taken their sicknesses and changed their life. There was a tax collector that was hated and became a loved disciple. Love one another as I have loved you. And then he says this. We grab this out of context often, but it's just wonderful. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. They weren't sure why he was saying that. He knew he was about to do that. And then he said, you're my friends. You are my friends. Do what I tell you to do. We go over to page 1197 to Romans chapter 5, and there is this succinct expression of the love of God, how great it is. We back up a little bit from it. Verse 5 says, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. I hope you get that. 
that it's God's love, but it's not just to be treasured up in our hearts, it's to be shed abroad. What he said to the woman at the well about the living water was a well of water springing up into everlasting life. What he said in chapter 12 of John about the water that he would give, the water would be a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Here he says, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. If you've got the love of God treasured up in your heart, you're halfway there, but you need to open up and let it flow. He says, when we were yet without strength in due time, at the right time, at the appropriate time, Christ died for the ungodly, and I raised my hand. He died for me. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We think about the two thieves that died with him on the crosses, and we think well of the one that had believed and said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. We don't think as well of the other one, but Jesus died for him too. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. And for the crowd that was casting in his teeth these insults and abuse and mocking and scorning, he died for them too. And he asked the Father to forgive them. He died for all sin. He didn't die for good people. He died for sinners. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Because that's how he expresses, that's how he commends his love toward us. Isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful, the song says. In chapter 8 of Romans, page 1202, a few pages to the right, chapter 8, at the very end of the chapter, verses 35 to 39, we have to start somewhere. Verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We are told of the love of Christ. We accept Jesus as our Savior and we enjoy the love of Christ. Having the love of Christ, can anything break us out of that? Can anything take that away from us? Paul throws up these possible awful things. Could, shall tribulations separate us from the love of Christ? From troubles, pressure? Or distress, things happen in your life and it makes you crazy. Will that separate you from the love of Christ? Or persecution, we, we are somehow so well preserved from persecution in this country, most of us, but in other places around the world, people who name the name of Jesus Christ go to prison or go to death. Shall those things separate us from the love of Christ? Persecution? Famine? I've been hungry for a few minutes, but not for days and days and days. I, I, I'm sorry, I can't claim famine has ever stricken me. Would it separate me from the love of Christ? No. Nakedness? I've, I've always had clothing, but if I didn't, would that separate me from the love of Christ? I, I don't know. We've seen some portrayals on film of the wickedness that was done by 
the nations of Europe to the Jewish people and how they were put in camps and stripped naked and kept naked and just grouped and starved and enslaved and killed because they were Jewish. Some of those Jewish people were Christians. They were also nakedness. Will that separate us from the love of Christ or is the love of Christ still overall? The story of Cory Ten Boom kind of tells some of that. Peril. The sword. Verse 36 quotes the Old Testament and mentions this is prophesied for thy sake. We are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Paul's looking into the future, seeing the fulfillment of prophecy that said there will be persecution and killing of God's people. It happened in the first several centuries, and it's happened down through the centuries since then, depending on where you were. And then he says in verse 37, the answer to the question, what shall separate us? Who shall separate us? Nay, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, not through our love to him, but through him that loved us. I am persuaded that not death, nothing in life, not angels, not spirit beings in high places, or powers or things present or things to come, nothing that's here now, nothing yet to come, nothing can separate me, nothing high, nothing deep, no sea monster, (laughs) any other created thing. It's not just we'll, we'll do it. It won't be able to do it. None shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He loved effectively when he died on the cross for our sins. He loved in a way that could not be undone when he died on the cross for our sins. We turn a page or two to the right to page 1252 to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says this to the Ephesian church, that Christ, verse 17, Ephesians three seventeen, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by love, by faith, excuse me. Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, we don't invite people to let Jesus into their heart. We ask them to believe in him, to have faith in him. But the truth is, the Holy Spirit, when a person believes, comes and lives in their hearts. Jesus, the Son of God, lives in heaven at the Father's right hand, and he's going to come back. But it is God's Holy Spirit that lives within each of our bodies. In the whole church, we have together, we are together the temple of God's Holy Spirit. And then he says he's in your hearts by faith. You, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints... You can get a hold of this. What is the breadth and length and depth and height? He's got four dimensions there. I don't know how that works, but there it is. The breadth and length and depth and height. He just whichever which way you measure it, know the love of Christ. And there's a play on words here. Know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. It's like seeing him which is invisible in my mind. You can know this. You can know this because the Spirit of God lives in you. You can know the love of Christ, although it passes knowledge. It's surpassing 
And knowing the love of Christ, you might be filled. You might be controlled by all the fullness of God. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Dwell on the love of Christ and do what he says. We again turn the page or two to page 1272, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. Closing the chapter, Paul gives this kind of a benediction. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, God even our Father, which has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. His introduction of the one he calls his Lord and God includes which has loved us. He's loved us. And because he loved us, he's given us everlasting do you see this word consolation? Isn't that a nice word? Everlasting, I think, encouragement, everlasting comfort, and good hope, good expectation, anticipation of heaven. He loved us and given us eternal hope and good expectation through grace. He says, that God comforts your hearts, and that God establish you in every good word and work but it all starts with which has loved us which has loved us turning further we come to 1st John page 1324 and it's hard to know where to start here but I start in chapter 4 and verse 7 Chapter 4 and verse 7, we have a longer passage in 1 John to look at. Beloved, how John spoke to his right, the people to whom he wrote. Beloved, let us love one another. That's all John would say at the end of his life. The story goes that he was carried in in a litter to the back of the church in Ephesus where somebody else preached and he just wanted to attend and listen. But after the message and the service was over, they'd gather around Paul, I'm saying Paul, John, on his litter, and say, Brother John, do you have a word for us? He says, my little children love one another. And they'd say, thank you, that's good. Thank you. What else? What else do you have for us? And he'd say, my little children love one another. And they said, thank you, John, that's good. That's really good. Is there another thing you want to tell us? What, another, what, what else do we need to know? And he'd look at him and he'd say, My little children, love one another. He says it here. Beloved, let us love one another. <coughs> love is of God. Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. This is how God showed his love toward us. God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might have life, we might live through him. Verse 10, here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is what love is, not our love toward God, not our warmed up love, not our warmed over love, 
but the love of God, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What a $5 word. We don't use it much anymore. But it means substitute, it means sacrifice, and it mostly means satisfaction. Satisfaction. When God needed a payment for sins, he sent his son who died for sins, and whatever the father needed was satisfied. He was satisfied for our sins because Jesus is the satisfaction. If we glance back at chapter 2 at the beginning of it, he says, little children, I don't want you to sin. I write these things unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, when we do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. He's the satisfaction for our sins, our substitute, our sacrifice. God is satisfied. And then he says, not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Back in chapter 4, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. That's the why of it, isn't it? I don't, I don't like everybody. You know what? I was thinking about getting a T-shirt made up that said, I'm all for Donald Trump. And then underneath that, I'd say, I don't like him, but that's okay. <laughs> that, that, that's kind of my attitude I'm all for Donald Trump. I don't like him, but that's okay. It's okay with him. It's okay with me. He's not out there to be liked. So anyway, that end of political comment. Sorry. Still further down in chapter 4 of 1 John, on verse 19, John writes, We love him because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. He that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And that, that was, I just wanted verse 19, actually. I read on too far there. I want to go one more place about the love of Christ, the love of God. Revelation chapter 1. I didn't put the page number in. If you turn to the very back of your Bible, you hit maps. And before that is concordance, maybe. But in Revelation, the first chapter of Revelation, in verse 19, I'm sorry I didn't have the page number, not verse 19, verse 5, just saying who John got this from. In verse 1 he says, it was the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him. He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, John bore, bare record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and the things he saw. In verse 4, John says, It's John writing to the churches, grace to you and peace. But it's not from me, it's from him which is and which was and which is to come. John says, I'm writing this, but it's from Jesus, which was and which is and which is to come. And from the sevenfold spirit, the seven spirits which are before his throne, Verse 5, he gets specific, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth. Can you realize when John writes this introduction to these letters and to this revelation, he's already seen the end of the book. 
And he's not thinking about Jesus the crucified. Jesus on the throne in heaven, the, the one who advocates for the believers. He's looking at chapter 19 and chapter 20 and chapter 21 and saying, the prince of the kings of the earth. He's already thinking about the end of the book. And so he calls him the prince of the kings of the earth. Jesus is coming back to rule and to reign. In verse 6 he says he's made us kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Glory we think, yeah, that's, that's, he's lifted up, he's high, he's exalted, we praise him. Dominion, that means he's in charge. Like God gave Adam dominion over the animals and the rest of creation. And God gave it again to Noah after the flood and said, they'll be afraid of you. You'll have dominion like Adam had. He says in Revelation 1.6, to God, to Jesus and God his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And verse 7, he's coming. He cometh with clouds. Every eye shall see him, even the ones that pierced him. And all the people that rejected him, all the kindreds of the earth, all of them, not just any one group, shall wail because of him. Oh, my. Well, back in, in, in the beginning of our lesson here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read the love of Christ constrains us. And we want to go to that thought now. How is it the love of Christ forces our hand, pushes us in a certain direction, constrains us? The verse says, because we thus judge, if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all. They which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. That's what's right. He deserves the life that I still have. I deserve the death that he already died. He died for all. On the books of God, we're all dead. We're still alive, we think, and we've, our point of view, we still live we should not live to themselves, but unto him that died for us and rose again. He can't leave that out. Well, I don't have a bookmark here, but I'm going to go to page 1154 in your Schofield Bible to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, page 1154. Verse 19, Peter and and all have been arrested because they healed a fella. <laughs> and a lot of people were getting happy and getting saved. And the people who arrested them, the high priest and all, gathered, got them out there. This says that there were about 5,000 men that believed because of this in the beginning of chapter 4. And they put them in jail overnight. And then they call them out the next day, they get them together and ask them, by what power or by what name have you done this? And Peter says, asking, if we this day being examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he's made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, just in case you're not sure which one I'm talking about, the one you crucified, <laughs> The one that God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you well. This Jesus Christ of Nazareth, which you crucified, which God raised from the dead, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. 
Neither is there salvation on any other. There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they weren't school people. They were unlearned and ignorant men. They marveled, took knowledge of them. They'd been with Jesus. Let me tell you something about the unlearned and ignorant men. They knew Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. <laughs> Maybe some Latin. <coughs> We measure people by our own little short six-inch ruler today. <clears throat> Somebody's educated if he knows how to pronounce the language correctly. They were at least tri, if not quadrilingual. <laughs> but <clears throat> they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus, and there's the guy that could not walk, walking and standing with them, leaping and praising God, and they couldn't say anything against it. So they said, get out of here. They sent them out, and they confers among themselves and says, what are we going to do? What should we do for these men? Well, you should believe. You should believe their message and support them and get the ministry going. That's not what they decided. We, gotta, we, we need to deny it, but we can't deny it. That it spread no further. What was their purpose? Political power. Will this threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name? We've got the authority. We'll do that. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Just as bad as the security people at the mall, Louis. Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you judge. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And they kept on threatening them, but then they let them go because they couldn't find a way to punish them because there are a whole bunch of people that knew about this wonderful deed that they had done to the man who had been lame. All men glorified God for that which was done. The man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, page 1219. Paul is describing his obligation to share the gospel and how he does things. He's saying, basically, I've not taken money from you. Verse 13, he says, don't you know, they which minister about the holy things live of the things of the temple. They that wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. The Levites, the priests, they all eat the sacrifices that the people bring for the Lord. Verse 14, even so has the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. He says, that's right, but I have used none of these things. I'm not in it for the food. I'm not in it for the money. Neither have I written these things that it should be so done unto me. It were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. Though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Kind of the same attitude Peter had there with, in Acts chapter 4. If I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. If I don't want to do it, I've still got to do it. If against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. What is that? A dispensation, we, don't, we use that word in, in theology classes sometimes, but it means a stewardship. A stewardship. Somebody is made responsible for somebody else's stuff. That's a steward. 
I don't know, in Ben-Hur, in the movie Ben-Hur, there was a steward left in charge of Ben-Hur's house when he got arrested and thrown into the galleys as a slave. Years and years later, he came back to Jerusalem, and this faithful steward has kept his house in order, and, and it was still there for him. A steward is somebody that is responsible for something that belongs to somebody else. And this, Paul says, a dispensation, a stewardship of the gospel is committed to me. I'm the servant. I'm the slave that's left responsible for this wonderful thing, the gospel. So what's my reward? If I preach the gospel, I do it without charge. I do it without charge. Looking back again where we came from here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the love of Christ constrains us. That's what moves us. That's what it is, how he deserves this life. We thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And then he says, a little further down in verse 15, that they which live should not, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. He says, this is what's right. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you deserved his death. And the life that you still have, he deserves. He deserves the life you still have. If you look at page 1198, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, page 1198. Paul asks a rhetorical question, a question he knows the answer to. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead, remember God's looking at him saying, when Jesus died, you died. How shall we that are dead live any longer, dead to sin, live any longer in sin? Verse 3, he says, don't you know? Here's the explanation. Is so so many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. We're buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, there's, we practice water baptism. I think these two verses can be understood both about water baptism and about the reality of what happens when you believe in Jesus. When you believe in Jesus, the reality is God sees you in the death of Jesus Christ and risen again with Christ. The picture that we do called water baptism, God and man see the ones that are believers saying, I'm a believer, and then they're baptized, placed under the water into the death of Christ, buried with him in baptism, raised again, bring them up out of the water so they don't drown, to walk in newness of life like he rose from the dead. It's a, both a description of the real baptism that we participate in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it is the, what is the picture of water baptism. So as many as, of, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. There's no real power in the water. The reality is what God did. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk 
in newness of life. Verse 5 says, if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. The, the water baptism is a figure, a likeness of his death and his resurrection. And then in verse 6 he says, knowing this, our old man, this is the reality, is crucified with him. I still walk around with him, but he's crucified from God's point of view with Jesus. That the body of sin might be destroyed in the reality of God's bookkeeping of heaven, the old man's done. And then he says, so henceforth we should not serve sin. He that is dead is freed from sin. If we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death has no more dominion over him. He doesn't have to die again day by day, week by week. No matter what some other religion might say that they're crucifying Christ anew. They're not supposed to. He died once for sin. He rose from the dead. Death has no more dominion over him. He's not going to die anymore. Verse 10 says, in that he died, he died unto sin once. In that he lives, he lives unto God. And then verse 11, very, very, very important and practical. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the instruction about how to have success in the Christian life. Put it down in your books. Reckon it the same way God sees you, you're dead in Christ. You reckon it, that's true. Dead to sin, alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Once you make that accounting, then live like it. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Start with reckoning yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Then don't let sin reign in your body. And verse 13, don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And I read a little further than the notes carried at that time. Once again, looking back at the beginning of our lesson, 2 Corinthians five, fourteen says, one died for all. And I'd like to dwell on that thought as we close up our study of this one verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. One died for all. On page 760, you go back to the prophet Isaiah and the 53rd chapter. And we'd, we'd like, love to read the whole chapter, but time forbids. Verse 6 says this, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Some people would like to read that like this, my hand representing you and me, and my wallet representing sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of the elect. Oh, that's not what it said, is it? The iniquity of us all. The iniquity of us all. Jesus died. He paid for all sin. In John chapter 1, page, seven, page 1115, 
Toward the end of the chapter, verse 29, John the Baptist is out with a few people around. (laughs) John is baptizing. The next day, John sees Jesus coming unto him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the elect. That must be some other version. I'm sorry. That's not what mine says. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. (laughs) Silly me. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, page 1275, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. Verse 5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for the elect. Got it wrong again. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Well, maybe in Hebrews we can get it right. We'll see. Hebrews chapter 2. This is page 1293. Hebrews 2 and verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. He, by the grace of God, should taste death for the elect. I did it again. He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. We already looked at verse 2 of 1 John chapter 2. We'll look at it again. I just want to reemphasize He is the propitiation for our sins. He's the satisfaction, not for ours only. How can you say it any plainly, more plainly? Also for the sins of the whole world. Also for the sins of the whole world. God is satisfied. We're going to go to the end of the chapter again just to close up our service. Here is that good news. God was In Christ, God the Father in heaven sent his son, Jesus Christ, to become a man, still God, but now a God and man, God himself and man. He's in Christ, and he took away what separated between God and man. He reconciles not the elect, but the world unto himself. How? By not imputing their trespasses unto them, he took the trespasses on himself. He has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Here it is again. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And then in verse 20, I love to close with, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're begging you, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God. Believe in him. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. This precious passage about what moves us, what forces us, what constrains us. It is the love of Christ and how we can live by counting ourselves dead indeed in him, alive unto God, and then being moved. As Peter said, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard, as Paul said as well. Father, bless each one that hears these words. If there's one that hasn't trusted Jesus, help him realize all he needs to do, God is already satisfied for sin. Believe in Jesus, and Jesus gives him 
the gift of his righteousness, the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life to everyone that believes in him. Let them do so quickly before it is ever too late. In Jesus' name, amen.